Chapter 8 of Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ella Quint of Applebacksville, Pennsylvania. Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death by Margaret O. Oliphant. Chapter 8 Defeat and Discouragement, Autumn, 1429. It was on the 7th September that Jeanne and her immediate followers reached the village of La Chapelle, where they encamped for the night. The next day was the day of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin, a great festival of the Church. It could scarcely be a matter of choice on the part of so devout a Catholic as Jeanne to take this day of all others, when every church bell was tinkling forth a summons to the faithful for the day of assault. In all probability, she was not now acting on her own impulse, but on that of the other generals and nobles. Had she refused, might it not have been alleged against her that after all her impatience it was she who was the cause of delay? The forces with Jeanne were not very large, a great proportion of the army remaining with Charles, no one seems to know where, either at Saint-Denis or at some intermediate spot, possibly to form a reserve force which could be brought up when wanted. The best informed historian only knows that Charles was not with the active force, but Alençon was at the head of the troops along with many other names well known to us, La Hire, and young Guy de Laval, and Zantrel, all mighty men of valor and the devoted friends of Jeanne. There is a something, a mist, an incertitude in the beginning of the assault, which was unlike the previous achievements of Jeanne, a certain want of precaution or knowledge of the difficulties which does not reflect honor upon the generals with her. Absolutely new to warfare, as she was before Orléans, she had ridden out at once on her arrival there to inspect the fortifications of the besiegers, but probably the continual skirmishing of which we are told made this impossible here, so that, though the maid studied the situation of the town in order to choose the best point for attack, it was only when already engaged that the army discovered a double ditch round the walls, the inner one of which was full of water. By sheer impetuosity the French took the gate of Saint-Honoré and its boulevard, or tower, driving its defenders back into the city, but their further progress was arrested by that discovery. It was on this occasion that Jeanne is supposed to have seized from a Burgundian in the melee a sword, of which she boasted afterward that it was a good sword capable of good blows, that we have no certain record that in all her battles she ever gave one blow or shed blood at all. It would seem to have been only after the taking of this gate that the discovery was made as to the two deep ditches, one dry, the other filled with water. Jeanne, whose place had always been with her standard at the immediate foot of the wall, from whence to direct and cheer on her soldiers, pressed forward to this point of peril, descending into the first fosse, and climbing up again on the second, the Dos Diane, which separated them, where she stood in the midst of a rain of arrows, fully exposed to all the enraged crowd of archers and gunners on the ramparts above, testing with her lance the depth of the water. We seem in the story to see her all alone, or with her standard-bearer only by her side, making this investigation. But that, of course, is only a pictorial suggestion, though it might for a moment be the fact. She remained there, however, from through in the afternoon till night, when she was forced away. The struggle must have raged around, while she stood on the dark edge of the ditch, probing the muddy water to see where it could best be crossed, shouting directions to her men in that voice, as a femme, which penetrated the noise of battle, and summoning the active and desperate enemy overhead. Rent thee, rent thee, she cried as she had done at Orléans. Surrender to the King of France! 
We hear nothing now of the white armor. It must have been dimmed and worn by much fighting, and the banner torn and glorious with the chances of the war. But it still waved over her head, and she still stood fast, on the ridge between the two ditches, shouting her summons, cheering the men, a spot of light still, amid all the steely glimmering of the mail coats and the dark downpour of that iron rain. Half a hundred war cries rending the air, shrieks from the walls of witch, devil, ribald, and names still more insulting to her purity, could not silence that treble shout, the most wonderful, surely, that ever ran through such an infernal clamor. So prodigious, the chronicler says, that it was a marvel to hear it. Depardieu, rendezvous, rendezvous, a roi de France. If, as we believe, she never struck a blow, the aspect of that wonderful figure becomes more extraordinary still. While the boldest of her companions struggled across to fling themselves and what beams and ladders they could drag with them against the wall, she stood, without even such shelter as close proximity to it might have given, cheering them on, exposed to every shot. The fight was desperate, and though there was no marked success on the part of the besiegers, yet there seems to have been nothing to discourage them, as the fight raged on. Few were wounded, notwithstanding the noise of the cannons and culverines, by the grace of God and the good luck of the maid. But towards the evening, Jean herself suddenly swayed and fell, an arrow having pierced her thigh. She seems, however, to have struggled to her feet again, undismayed, when a still greater misfortune befell. Her standard-bearer was hit, first in the foot, and then, as he raised his visor to pull the arrow from the wound, between his eyes, falling dead at her feet. What happened to the banner? We are not told. Jeanne most likely herself caught it as it fell. But at this stroke, more dreadful than her own wound, her strength failed her, and she crept behind a bush or heap of stones, where she lay, refusing to quit the place. Some say she managed to slide into the dry ditch, where there was a little shelter, but resisted all attempts to carry her away, and some add that while she lay there she employed herself in a vain attempt to throw faggots into the ditch to make it passable. It is said that she kept calling out to them to persevere, to go on, and Paris would be won. She had promised, they say, to sleep that night within the conquered city, but this promise comes to us with no seal of authority. Jeanne knew that it had taken her eight days to free Orléans, and she could scarcely have promised so sudden a success in the more formidable achievement. But she was at least determined in her conviction that perseverance only was needed. She must have lain for hours on the slope of the outer moat, urging on the troops with such force as her dauntless voice could give, repeating again and again that the place could be taken if they but held on. But when night came, Alençon and some other of the captains overcame her resistance, and there being clearly no further possibility for the moment, succeeded in setting her upon her horse and conveyed her back to the camp. While they rode with her, supporting her on her charger, she did nothing but repeat, Garde d'hommage! Oh, what a misfortune that the siege of Paris should fail, all for want of constancy and courage! If they had but gone on till morning, she cried, the inhabitants would have known. It is evident from this that she must have expected a rising within, and could not yet believe that no such thing was to be looked for. Parma Montine! The place would have been taken! she said in the hearing, one cannot but feel of the chronicler, who reports so often those homely words. Thus Jean was led back after the first day's attack. Her wound was not serious, and she had been repulsed during one of the days fighting at Orléans without losing courage. But something had changed her spirit, as well as the spirit of the army she led. There is a curious glimpse given us into her camp at this point, which indeed comes to us through the observation of an enemy, 
yet seems to have in it an unmistakable gleam of truth. It comes from one of the parties which had been granted a safe conduct to carry away the dead of the English and Burgundian side. They tell us, among other circumstances, such as that the French burnt their dead, a manifest falsehood, but admirably calculated to make them a horror to their neighbors, that many in the ranks cursed the maid who had promised that they should, without any doubt, sleep that night in Paris and plunder the wealthy city. The men with their safe conduct creeping among the dead, to recover those bodies which had fallen on their own side, and furtively to count the fallen on the other, who were delighted to bring a report that the maid was no longer the fountain of strength and blessing, but secretly cursed by her own forces, are sinister figures, groping their way through the darkness of the September night. Next morning, however, her wound being slight, Jean was up early and in conference with Alençon, begging him to sound his trumpets, and set forth once more. "'I shall not budge from here till Paris is taken,' she said. No doubt her spirit was up, and a determination to recover lost ground strong in her mind. While the commanders consulted together, there came a band of joyful augury into the camp. The seigneur of Montmorency, with sixty gentlemen, who had left the party of Burgundy in order to take service under the banner of the maid. No doubt this important and welcome addition to their number exhilarated the entire camp. In the commotion of the Revaillet, while each man looked to his weapons, wiping off from breastplate and helmet the heavy dew of the September morning, greeting the new friends and brothers-in-arms who had come in, and arranging, with a better knowledge of the ground than that of yesterday, the mode of attack. Jeanne would not confess that she felt her wound, in her eagerness to begin the assault a second time. And all were in good spirits, the disappointment of the night having blown away, and the determination to do or die being stronger than ever. Were the men-at-arms perhaps less amenable? Were they whispering to each other that Jeanne had promised them Paris yesterday, and for the first time had not kept her word? It would almost require such a fact as this to explain what follows. For as they began to set out, the whole field in movement, there was suddenly seen approaching another party of cavaliers. Perhaps another reinforcement, like that of Montmorency? This new band, however, consisted but of two gentlemen and their immediate attendants, the Duc de Bar and the Comte de Clermont, always a bird of evil omen riding hot from Saint-Denis with orders from the king. These orders were abrupt and peremptory, to turn back. Jeanne and her companions were struck dumb for the moment. To turn back, and Paris at their feet? There must have burst forth a storm of remonstrance and appeal. We cannot tell how long the indignant parley lasted. The historians do not enlarge upon the disastrous incident. But at last the generals yielded to the orders of the king. Jean humiliated, miserable, and almost in despair. We cannot but feel that on no former occasion would she have given way so completely. She would have rushed to the king's presence, overwhelmed him with impetuous prayers, exhorted somehow the permission to go on. But Charles was safe at seven miles' distance, and his envoys were imperious and peremptory, like men able to enforce obedience if it were not given. She obeyed at last, recovering courage a little in the hope of being able to persuade Charles to change his mind, and sanction another assault on Perry from the other side by means of a bridge over the Seine towards St. Denis, which Alençon had constructed. Next morning it appears that without even asking that permission, a portion of the army set out very early for this bridge. But the king had divined their project, and when they reached the riverside the first thing they saw was their bridge in ruins. It had been treacherously destroyed in the night, not by their enemies, but by their king. It is natural that the French historians should exhaust themselves in explanation of this fatal change of policy. Kicherla, 
who was the first to bring to light all the most important records of this period of history, lays the entire blame upon La Tremuel, the chief advisor of Charles. But that Charles himself was at heart equally guilty, no one can doubt. He was a man who proved himself in the end of his career to possess both sense and energy, though tardily developed. It was to him that Jeanne had given that private sign of the truth of her mission, by which he was overawed and convinced in the first moment of their intercourse. Within the few months, which had elapsed since she appeared as Chinon, everything that was wonderful had been done for him by her means. He was then a fugitive pretender, not even very certain of his own claim, driven into a corner of his lawful dominions, and fully prepared to abandon even that small standing ground to fly into Spain or Scotland, and give up the attempt to hold his place as King of France. Now he was the consecrated king, with the holy oil upon his brows and the crown of his ancestors on his head, accepted and proclaimed, all France stirring to her old allegiance, new conquests falling into his hands every day, and the richest portion of his kingdom secure under his sway. To check thus preemptorily the career of the deliverer who had done so much for him, degrading her from her place, throwing more than doubt upon her inspiration, falsifying by force the promises which she had made, promises which had never failed before, was a worse and deeper sin on the part of a young man, by right of his kingly office, the very head of knighthood in every chivalrous undertaking, than it could be on the part of an old and subtle diplomatist who had never believed in such wild measures, and all through had clogged the steps and endeavored to neutralize the mission of the warrior maid. It is very clear, however, that between them it was the king and his chamberlain who made this assault upon Paris so evident and complete a failure. One day's repulse was nothing in a siege. There had been one great repulse and several lesser ones at Orléans. Jean, even though weakened by her wound, had sprung up that morning full of confidence and courage. In no way was the failure to be laid to her charge. But this could never, perhaps, have been explained to the whole body of the army, who had believed her word without a doubt, and taken her success for granted. If they had been wavering before, which seems possible, for they must have been, to a considerable extent, new levies, the campaigners of the Loire having accomplished their period of feudal service, this sudden downfall must have strengthened every doubt and damped every enthusiasm. The maid of whom such wonderful tales had been told, she who had been the angel of triumph, the irresistible, before whom the English fled, and the very walls fell down. Was she, after all, only a sorceress, as the others called her? A creature whose incantations had failed after the flash of momentary success? Such impressions are too apt to come like clouds over every popular enthusiasm, quenching the light and chilling the heart. Jeanne was thus dragged back to Saint-Denis, against her will, in every instinct of her being, and there ensued three days of passionate debate and discussion. For a moment it appeared as if she would have thrown off the bonds of loyal obedience and pursued her mission at all hazards. Her voices, if they had previously given her uncertain sound, promising only the support and succor of God, but no success, now spoke more plainly and urged the continuance of the siege, and the maid was torn in pieces between the requirements of her celestial guardians and the force of authority around her. If she had broken out into open rebellion, who would have followed her? She had never yet done so. When the king was against her, she had pleaded or forced an agreement, and received or snatched a consent from the malevolent chamberlain, as at Jarjou and Troy. Never yet had she set herself in public opposition to the will of her sovereign. She had submitted to all kinds of tests and trials rather than this, and to have lain half a day wounded outside Paris, and to stand there pleading her cause with her wound still unhealed, were not likely things to strengthen her powers of resistance. 
The voices bade me remain at St. Denis, she said afterwards at her trial, and I desired to remain, but the seigneurs took me away in spite of myself. If I had not been wounded, I should never have left. Added to the force of these circumstances, it was no doubt apparent to all that to resume operations after that forced retreat and the betrayal it gave of divided councils would be less hopeful than ever. These arguments even convinced the bold Lahire, who for his part, being no better than a freelance, could move hither and thither as he would, and thus the first defeat of the maid, a disaster involving all the misfortunes that followed in its train, was accomplished. Jean's last act in Saint-Denis was one to which perhaps the modern reader gives undue significance, but which certainly must have had a certain melancholy meaning. Before she left, dragged almost a captive in the train of the king, we are told that she laid on the altar of the cathedral the armor she had worn on that evil day before Paris. It was not an unusual act for a warrior to do this on his return from the wars, and if she had been about to renounce her mission, it would have been easily comprehensible. But no such thought was in her mind. Was it a movement of despair? Was it with some womanish fancy that the arms in which she had suffered defeat should not be born again? Or was it done in some gleam of higher revelation made to her that defeat, too, was a part of victory, and that not without that bitterness of failure could the fame of the soldier of Christ be perfected? I have remarked already that we hear no more of the white armor, inlaid with silver and dazzling like a mirror, in which she had begun her career. Perhaps it was the remains of that panoply of triumph which she laid out before the altar of the patron saint of France, all dim now with hard work and the shadow of defeat. It must have marked a renunciation of one kind or another, the sacrifice of some hope. She was no longer Jeanne the Invincible, the triumphant, whose very look made the enemy tremble and flee, and gave double force to every Frenchman's arm. Was she then and there abdicating, becoming to her own consciousness Jeanne the champion only, honest and true, but no longer the inspired maid, the envoy of God? To these questions we can give no answer, but the act is pathetic and fills the mind with suggestions. She, who had carried every force triumphantly with her, and quenched every opposition, bitter and determined though that had been, was now a thrall to be dragged almost by force in an unworthy train. It is evident that she felt the humiliation to the bottom of her heart. It is not for human nature to have the triumph alone, the humiliation, the overthrow, the chill and tragic shadow must follow. Jeanne had entered into that cloud when she offered the armor that had been like a star in front of the battle at the shrine of St. Denis. Hers was now to be a sadder, a humbler, perhaps a still nobler part. It is enough to trace the further movements of the king to perceive how at every step the iron must have entered deeper and deeper into the heart of the maid. He made his arrangements for the government of each of the towns which had acknowledged him, Bouvet, Compagnie, Saint-Lys, and the rest. He appointed commissioners for the due regulation of the truce with Philip of Burgundy, and then the retreating army took its march southward towards the mild and wealthy country, all fertility and quiet, where a recreant prince might feel himself safe and amuse himself at his leisure. By Lagny, by Provine, by Bercy sur Sienne, where he had been checked before in his retreat and almost forced to the march on Paris, by Seine and Montargis until at last on the 29th of September, no doubt diminished by the withdrawal of many a local troop and knight whose service was over, the forces arrived at Guienne, where they had set forth at the end of June for a series of victories. It is to be supposed that the king was well enough satisfied with the conquests accomplished in three months. 
and indeed in ordinary circumstances they would have formed a triumphant list. Charles must have felt himself free to play after the work which he had not done, and to leave his good fortune and the able negotiators who hoped to get Perry and other good things from Philip of Burgundy without paying anything for them, to do the rest. We can imagine nothing more dreadful for the maid than the months that followed. The court was not ungrateful to her. She received the warmest welcome from the queen. She had a maison arranged for her, like the household of a noble chief, with the addition of women and maidens of rank to her existing staff, and everything which could serve to show that she was one whom the king delighted to honor. And Charles would have her apparelled gloriously, like the king's daughter in the psalm. He gave her a mantle of cloth of gold, open at both sides to wear over her armor, and apparently did his best to make her, if not a noble lady, yet into the semblance of a noble young chevalier, one of the glories of his court, with all the distinction of her achievements and all the complacences of a carpet knight. It was said afterwards, in the absence of any graver possibility of accusation, that she liked her fine clothes. The tears rise to the eyes at such a suggestion. She was so natural that let us hope she did, the martyr maid whose torture had already begun. If that mantle of gold gave her a moment of pleasure, it is something to be thankful for in the midst of the dismal shadows that were already closing round her. They were ready to give her any shining mantle, any beautiful dress, even a title and a noble name if she would. But what the king and his counsellors were determined on was that she should no more have the fame of individual triumph, or do anything save under their orders. Alençon, the gentle duke with whom she had taken so much trouble, and who had grown into a true and noble comrade, made one effort to free his friend and leader. He planned an expedition into Normandy, where, with the help of Jeanne, he hoped to inflict upon the English a loss so tremendous the destruction of their base of operations that they would be compelled to abandon the centre of France altogether and leave the way open to Paris and to the recovery of the entire kingdom. But the king, or La Tremuel, as the historians prefer to say, would not permit Jeanne to accompany him, and this hope came to nothing. Alençon disbanded his troops, everything in the form of an army was broken up, the short period of feudal service making this inevitable unless new levies were made, and no forces were left under arms except those bands which formed the bodyguard of the king. Nevertheless, there was plenty of work to be done still, and the breaking up of the French forces encouraged many a little garrison of English partisans, which would have yielded naturally and easily to a strong national party. In the midst of the winter, however, it seemed appropriate to the court to launch forth an expedition against some of the unsubdued towns, perhaps on account of the mortal languishment of Jeanne herself, perhaps for some other reason of its own. The first necessity was to collect the necessary forces, and for this reason Jeanne came to Bourges, where she was lodged in one of the great houses of the city, that of Reynard de Bolognais, Conseller de Bois, and his wife, Marguerite, one of the queen's ladies. She was there for three weeks collecting her men, and the noble gentlewoman, who was her hostess, was afterwards in the rehabilitation trial, one of the witnesses to the purity of her life. From this lady and others we have a clear enough view of what the maid was in this second chapter of her history. She spent her time in the most intimate intercourse with Madame Marguerite, sharing even her room, so that nothing could be more complete than the knowledge of her hostess of every detail of her young guest's life. And wonderful as was the difference between the peasant maiden of Domremy and the most famous woman in France, the life of Jeanne, the deliverer of her country, is as the life of Jeanne, the cottage sempstress, as simple, as devout, and as pure. She loved to go to church for the early matins, but as it was not fit that she should go out alone at that hour, 
she besought Madame Marguerite to go with her. In the evening she went to the nearest church, and there, with all her old childish love for the church bells, she had them rung for half an hour, calling together the poor, the beggars who haunt every Catholic church, the poor friars and batismen, the penniless and forlorn from all the neighborhood. This custom would, no doubt, soon become known, and not only her poor pensioners, but the general crowd would gather to gaze at the maid, as well as to join in her prayers. It was her great pleasure to sing a hymn to the Virgin, probably one of the litanies which the unlearned worshipper loves, with its choruses and constant repetitions, in company with all those untutored voices in the dimness of the church, while the twilight sank into night and the twinkling stars of candles on the altar made a radiance in the middle of the gloom. When she had money to give, she divided it, according to the liberal custom of her time, among her poor fellow worshippers. These evening services were her recreation. The days were full of business, of enrolling soldiers and regulating the lances, groups of retainers, headed by their lord, who came to perform their feudal service. The ladies of the town, who had the advantage of knowing Madame Marguerite, did not fail to avail themselves of this privilege, and thronged to visit her wonderful guest. They brought her their sacred medals and rosaries to bless, and asked her a hundred questions. Was she afraid of being wounded, or was she assured that she would not be wounded? No more than others, she said, and she put away their religious ornaments with a smile, bidding Madame Marguerite touch them, or the visitors themselves, which would be just as good as if she did it. She would seem to have been always smiling, friendly, checking with a laugh the adulation of her visitors, many of whom were medals with her own effigy if only one had been saved for us, as there were many banners made after the pattern of hers. But cheerful as she was, a prevailing tone of sadness now appears to run through her life. On several occasions she spoke to her confessor and chaplain, who attended her everywhere, of her death. If it should be my fate to die soon, tell the king our master, on my part, to build chapels, where prayer may be made to the Most High for the salvation of the souls of those who shall die in the wars for the defense of the kingdom. This was the one thing she seemed anxious for, and it returned again and again to her mind. Her thoughts indeed were heavy enough. Her larger enterprises had been cruelly put a stop to. Her companions in arms had been dispersed. She had been separated from her lieutenant Alençon, and from all the friends between whom and herself great mutual confidence had sprung up. Even the commission which had at last been put in her hands was a trifling one and led to nothing, bringing the king no nearer to any satisfactory end and the troops were under command of a new captain, whom she scarcely knew, d'Albert, who was the son-in-law of La Tremoille, and probably little inclined to be a friend to Jeanne. In these circumstances there was little of an exhilarating or promising kind. Nevertheless, as an episode, few things had happened to Jeanne more memorable than the siege of saint pierre la Motier. The first assault upon the town was unsuccessful. The retreat had sounded, and the troops were streaming back from the point of attack, when Jean Dolon, the faithful friend and brave gentleman who was at the head of the maid's military household, being himself wounded in the heel and unable to stand or walk, saw the maid almost alone before the stronghold, four or five men only with her. He dragged himself up as well as he could upon his horse, and hastened towards her, calling out to her to ask what she did there, and why she did not retire with the rest. She answered him, taking off her helmet to speak, that she would leave only when the place was taken and went on shouting for faggots and beams to make a bridge across the ditch. It is to be supposed that seeing she paid no attention, nor budged a step from that dangerous point, this brave man, wounded though he was, must have made an effort to rally the retiring besiegers, 
but Jeanne seems to have taken no notice of her desertion, nor ever to have paused in her shop for planks and gabions. All to the bridge, she shouted. All fagot, et au clay, dat le monde. Everyone to the bridge. Jeanne, withdraw, withdraw. You are alone, someone said to her. Bareheaded, her countenance all aglow, the maid replied. I have still with me fifty thousand of my men. Were those the men whom the prophet's servants saw when his eyes were opened and he beheld the innumerable company of angels that surrounded his master? But Jeanne, wrapped in the trance and ecstasy of battle, gave no explanation. To work, to work, her clear voice went on, ringing over the startled head of the good knight who knew war, but not any rapture like this. History itself, awe-stricken, would almost have us believe that alone with her own hand the maid took the city. So entirely does every figure disappear but that one, and the perplexed and terrified spectator vainly urging her to give up so desperate an attempt. But no doubt the shouts of a voice so strange to every such scene, the vox infantile, the amazing and clear voice, silvery and womanly, as a femme, and the efforts of Doulon to bring back the retreating troops were successful, and Jean once more triumphantly kept her word. The place was strongly fortified, well-provisioned, and full of people. Therefore the whole narrative is little less than miraculous, though very little is said of it. Had they but persevered, as she had said, a few hours longer before Paris, who could tell that the same result might not have been obtained? She was not successful, however, with La Charité, which after a siege of a month's duration still held out and had to be abandoned. These long operations of regular warfare were not in Jeanne's way, and her coadjutor in command, it must be remembered, was in this case commissioned by her chief enemy. We are told that she was left without supplies, and in the depths of winter, in cold and rain and snow, with every movement hampered, and the ineffective government ever ready to send orders of retreat, or to cause bewildering and confusing delays by the want of every munition of war. Finally, at all events, the French forces withdrew, and again an unsuccessful enterprise was added to the record of the once victorious maid. That she went on continually promising victory as in her early times is probably the mere rumor spread by her detractors, who were now so many, for there is no real evidence that she did so. Everything, rather, points to discouragement, uncertainty, and to a silent rage against the coercion which she could not overcome. End of chapter 8